Well, welcome back along to this edition of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this edition of the podcast, we're going to be reviewing a pretty popular meme that's floating around the internet and the blogosphere dealing with some of the quote-unquote monsters in the Bible. If you'd like to follow this uh, episode or this blog or any of the other previous episodes, you can always find me on my blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. You can find me on Facebook under the group page for Freed Thinker, or you can search me on iTunes uh, at the Freed Thinker Podcast. Now, in today's episode, uh, the meme that I'm talking about is one put out by um, a group apparently called Evidence of Harm. Um, pretty ominous sounding name. And it's a picture of a bunch of different supposedly mythical creatures that are found in the Bible. Um, it shows a sea monster, Leviathan, Behemoth, uh, all these things. It shows a kangaroo, and it shows only one of these is not in the Bible. Know your Bible which is obviously the kangaroo. And the idea is to try to get us to see, oh, well, the Bible shows all these mythological creatures really exist. Therefore, you should just toss out your Bible. Now, this meme is an absolute total failure, as we'll see. The major problem with with this is that those graphics used to represent each one of the animals is supposed to make us think that those images are adequate representation of what the Hebrew authors really meant. We're going to see that this is simply not the case. I, I want to begin also with a procedural note. I'm going to be citing primarily the New American Standard Bible uh, because it is, in my opinion and in the opinions of most scholars, uh, for many reasons, the best mass market translation out today. Often the NASB has cleared up the problem with the passage that was plagued by the, the King James. So when I need to, I'll cite the King James Version uh, and we'll note that I've made the change. Now, let's move on to these lists of creatures. So the first monsters we see in this meme are the sea monster followed by Leviathan. We can see in the image of these creatures that they were these huge, terrifying looking monsters with lots of legs and wings and crashing waves all around them. But is this how the Bible describes them? Not really, as we'll see. In fact, the sea monster and Leviathan are actually likely the same animal in the mind of the Hebrew writers. When we look at the couplets in Psalm 74, we see that the same animal is called sea monster in the first line and Leviathan in the next. Now, for those who don't know, couplets are an extremely common literary device in Hebrew literature, where something is described in one line and then re-described in the very next line. Such as in Psalm 78.1, where the psalmist writes, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Here, listening to God's instruction is rephrased as inclining one's ears to the words of God's mouth. They mean the same thing, but they're described in different terms. So when we read in Psalm 74, 13 to 14, quote, you broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters, you crushed the heads of Leviathan, end quote, we can see that the same beast is being described in the couplet. And in fact, some of the verses even use the same word that is later translated in the KJV, of course, as dragon, such as Isaiah 27.1. So it's possible that in some cases, even the quote dragon and the sea monster Leviathan are one and the same. Now, what are the main verses for sea monster and Leviathan? There are a few. I'm going to read through some of them. Job 3.8 says, Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. This is found in a direct speech made by Job, not a claim made by the author of Job. That is, this is direct speech. Job 7.12 Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? This again is direct speech from Job. 
The next one is from Job. It's actually the long, lengthy one about Leviathan. I'm only going to read a part of it for you just so you can kind of get a flavor of the type of literature that's found in it. It's found in Job 41, 1 through 34. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you, or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you bind him for your maidens? And so on. It goes on in this very, very poetic, flowerly language for a, a great number of verses that I can skip through. I just wanted to get you the feel uh, of, what that, of what that section is. Then Psalm th uh, 74, 13, 14, which we read, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Uh, Psalm 104, 24 to 26. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea great and broad in which the s are swarms without number, animals both great and small. There the ships move along and Leviathan which you have formed to sport in it. Isaiah 27.1 In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Ezekiel 32.1-2 In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month of the first, and on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like the monsters of the seas, and you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled the rivers. Lamentations 4.3, only found in the KJV. Even the sea monsters draw out the breast. They give suck to their young ones. The daughters of my people is become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. This is actually a good example where the NASB benefits from 400 years of, of textual criticism and study and better translated a term that was known to the editors of the KJV, uh, but has become known to us now. So the, the NASB translates it correctly. Even jackals offer the breast and they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. So what can we say about the sea monster Leviathan? First of all, we simply don't know what it is. The graphic would like us to pretend that Christians believe in something like what is shown in the picture. The problem is that Christians don't. We simply don't know what is being described in these, in these passages, but there are good reasons to think that the animal is much more ordinary, as we'll see. It is likely that this is not describing some mythical creature, but rather is describing a crocodile or a very dangerous poisonous snake or serpent or something of that kind. Not only are the terms used universally understood as serpentine creatures, but we'll see that much of the confusion arises when we fail to understand how they frequently function as representations of the deities of the powerful nations that they have opposed Israel in their past. But first, let me ask you, if you didn't know what a giant squid was, or what the recently discovered frilled shark was, if you don't know what that is, look it up, and some other bizarre sea creature that you saw while you were fishing or washed up dead on shore, would you be blamed for calling it a sea monster? Hardly. So why should we expect ancient people to be any different? And in fact, as we'll see in a moment, they didn't call them sea monster. <laughs> that was the English translation that the translators used for the King James Bible. The Hebrew authors simply called it a tanin, which literally just meant 
serpent or coiled one, as we'll see. Now, Leviathan is a transliteration from the Hebrew into English. Uh, it's Livyathan, which Waltke shows to mean a coiled one, and is one of these tenanim. Im is just the plural ending in the Hebrew. While we don't know exactly what creature it is for certain, based on the usage of the term and the description given in Job, many scholars think that what we're dealing with is a crocodile or some kind of large water snake. The interesting part is not actually what animal it is, but how the biblical authors use the animal to represent, uh, or to uh, use the animal as a polemic against the oppressive neighboring empires. For example, Isaiah 27.1 says, In that day, the Lord with his hard, with his uh, hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. That day, in the verse, is a reference to the day of the Lord, when God will judge the nations. That is, on the judgment day, Leviathan will be slain. Now, Leviathan becomes a reference to Satan, or the powers of evil. The book of Revelation in the New Testament will pick up this theme, as we'll see, saying, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Or elsewhere, and that was in Revelation 12:9. Or elsewhere, John writes, quote, "And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years." End quote. Revelation 22. So it is possible that the descriptions and uses of the serpent are not just the descriptions of an animal at all, but function rather as a polemical allusion to Satan. Thus, he is described with this language from ancient Near Eastern myths. Which is not really surprising, considering that sometimes in the Bible he's called Beelzebub, sometimes in English translations Beelzebub, a name first described to one of the false gods, one of the Baals, in the ancient Near Eastern pantheon. This is even more probable, considering that a major feature of the Old Testament is its use of parallel thought forms in order to polemicize their neighbors. That is, the Hebrew authors would commonly take a theme or an image from their pagan surroundings and use it like hooks to hang their message on. For example, they were not affirming the existence of the Baal, but they felt free to use it as a symbol for evil and idolatry. For more, I recommend checking, on, checking out John Currid's lecture uh, series entitled Crass Plagiarism or John Walton's lecture Reading Genesis Through Ancient Eyes, both of which are available on iTunes. And if you read the blog, there's a footnote to the links. Uh, or, as Professor Howard Voss has noted, quote, the Old Testament prophet was referring to poetic imagery known to his people just as a Christian writers alluded to Greco-Roman mythology without encouraging belief in the pagan deities, end quote. The false gods and the mythical creatures of, of chaos became names for Satan. Another ancient Near Eastern tenon was Rahab, no, not the prostitute in Jericho, which Waltke defines as the arrogant one. Isaiah 51, 9 through 10 says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? This is a reference to the Exodus in Egypt. Again, <clears throat> the Hebrew here for dragon is tenon. Here we have another application of the dragon theme. 
I think we'll see in the, that the biblical authors use the image of the dragon, which we will see is not what we think of when we hear of the term dragon, to describe what they consider to be evil powers, satanic or otherwise. But what we see in this Isaiah 51 passage is that at the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, it was Rahab that was cut into pieces. At the New Exodus passage in Isaiah 27, which we read previously, it is Leviathan that is pierced. In Isaiah, Rahab is a poetic allusion for Egypt, which is not a stretch to think considering that it was a serpent that portrayed the power of Pharaoh on his headdress, and a crocodile was a common illustration of his might. We know that the venomous asp and the deadly crocodile were both symbols of power and divinity that the pharaohs took to represent themselves. The biblical authors were just using the same imagery for them that they ascribed to themselves. And moreover, each of these nations worshipped what were, uh, in the eyes of any faithful Israelite, demonic false gods represented by these two creatures. And so the defeat of the nations was also a defeat of those gods, and thus a defeat of the dragon serpents that symbolized those gods. These, this final defeat is also foreshadowed in the curse on the land serpent Satan, just after the fall in the garden, when God promises, quote, he shall bruise your head, speaking there of the Messiah. It is possible, then, that these uses of Leviathan and the sea monster, while possible references to real animals, such as a crocodile or a large and dangerous serpent, are metaphors for the wicked powers of kingdoms like Egypt and Babylon. As we just stated, but we'll do, but we'll do well to keep in mind, this defeat of the serpent motif was emblematic to the Jews because of God's decree that one of the main roles of Messiah would be to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah mentioned the Tananim by way of, of this exact analogy. In Jeremiah 51.34, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured me and crushed me. He has set me down like an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster, and he has filled his stomach with my delicacies and washed me away. Here, the word monster translates the Hebrew word tannin, a serpent, a dragon, serpent, sea monster. This is similar to the Isaiahic discussion about Judgment Day being a, a swallowing up of the destruction and destruction of the serpent. Among the first two books of the writings, Job's and Psalms, these themes were even more prevalent. In Psalm 73, the psalmist writes, "You divided up the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters." You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. As we saw before, the sea monsters here in this couplet are called Leviathan. The psalmist co-ops this mythical language, but in a different way than the rest of scripture, since he does not refer to the sea monster here as Rahab, but as Leviathan. Another example is when the psalmist in Psalm 104 tells the story of creation in a similar way to Genesis. Psalm 104:26 says, There the ships move along, and the Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it, it is the sea. As Waltke says in a footnote, the point of this verse is that it, quote, reduces Leviathan to a duck in God's bathtub, end quote. The Tananim, including Leviathan and Rahab, are but creatures that God had made. The point of these passages is not to tell us about the nature of some mythical creature, but to show us that God is creator of all things, no matter how frightening or dangerous they may be not to give us exact morphological descriptions. This brings us to Job, who mentions these ancient Near Eastern creatures, such as in Job 3.8, where Job says of the day of his birth, let those, who curse it, er, let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Perhaps the eschatology of Job includes the loosing of Leviathan right before the final judgment, like in Revelation 23. 
But whatever the text means, Job is cursing the day of his birth and comparing it to evil eschatological events. Job mentions sea monsters in general in Job 7.12, quote, am I, am I the sea or the sea monster, Tannen, that you set a guard over me, end quote. Job also refers to the death of the Tannen called Rahab in the same way as the prophets above when he writes Job 26, 12 through 13. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath the heavens are cleared, his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Here the word serpent is the same in Genesis 3, 1, showing that the theme of representing evil powers has carried through to the book of Job. And just after mentioning Behemoth, Leviathan comes up again in Job 41, 1 through 2. Can you draw 41, 1, for, uh, and actually goes farther than 2, but I'm only quoting up to 2. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook, or press down his tongue with a cord? And God continues this way, describing Leviathan in some very poetic terms. But the point is to show us that while Job is puny compared to this powerful serpent, that God can catch the mighty Leviathan like a simple fish. The point is to emphasize God's strength and Leviathan's impetus, imp, impotence, and thus to challenge Job for confronting God. And therefore, in the Job cycle, it is to draw us back to the original adversary of the book of Job, which was Satan himself. No matter whether he is seen as a serpent dragon of the sea or a land serpent in Genesis, he is a creature of God and under his control. Satan is impotent compared to God. More than that, Satan is powerless except as God gives him authority, which we see in the opening prologue of the book. This is the teaching of scripture throughout. So the Bible is not describing some mega water dragon that lives in the sea. What we find in the Bible is the description of what would likely have been a terrifying creature to any ancient person, a crocodile, a, land, a large shark, uh, a deadly snake such as an adder or an asp, and that animal then being used as a symbol of the, power, of the evil power of the oppressive nations with which Israel encounters. This was their version of political satire or opposition rhetoric. This was their version of the George W. Bush, the axis of evil. We will actually see more of this when the serpent theme is carried forward into the New Testament under the dragon image. So for the first two graphics, this meme is a total bust. Next, Behemoth. This creature is only mentioned in one passage, Job 40, 15-24. I'm only going to read part of it because it's pretty long. Behold now Behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. And so on. In this case, we simply have no clue what the animal uh, is that's being described. But we know it's nothing like the picture of a purple monster. <laughs> Those who read the context of the passage know that this is found in a poetic section of the Bible, just like the sea monsters in Leviathan often was, and is described in poetic language using poetic imagery. Have you never read a poem about an elephant or a crocodile? I mean, just think of Lewis Carroll's poem about the crocodile. How doth the little crocodile improve his shining tail and pour the waters of the Nile on every golden scale? How cheerfully he seems to grin, how neatly spreads his claws, and welcomes little fishes in with gently smiling jaws. Should we think that Carol actually believed that crocodiles made technological improvements to their tails like upgrades, 
or that they had golden scales, and that they are able to grin and smile. Of course not. Carol is clearly using poetry, and it is obvious to anyone reading it that he is describing a poetic version of the crocodile. To anyone reading Job about Behemoth, about Behemoth the same is obviously true. The person who misses that is like the person who reads Shakespeare's Hamlet and goes away thinking that he read a comedy. This now brings us to the possible identity of Behemoth. The word Behemoth is also a Hebrew transliteration into English. The term literally just means a great animal. Job uses the term Behemoth, and this word is only used in one other place in the Bible, and that is in Psalm 73:22. Quote, Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. End quote. Here the psalmist is not comparing himself to a mythical creature, but rather just saying that he was senseless and ignorant like a common beast. In fact, most translations put in the footnote in the Job passage that Behemoth is likely a hippopotamus or an elephant based on the description. But the Hebrew word is a general one for an animal, sometimes referring to cattle or other livestock in outside sources. In fact, the translator of the Septuagint translate the word with the word theria, which in the general term which is a general term for a wild animal in Greek. But the point of the text is that both Behemoth and the sea monsters Leviathan listed after Behemoth are creatures of God that depend upon him. God says, Behold Behemoth which I made as I made you, Job forty fifteen. This mighty beast depends on God for his food, shelter, and strength. Again, the point is to emphasize God's strength and Behemoth's impotence, and thus to challenge Job for confronting God. Both of these creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, are not impotent when compared to Job, but they are when compared to God. So again, in this case, we see the graphic from the meme to be just totally unrepresentative of what is stated in the biblical text. Okay, so the first few were the most complex. We'll see going forward that the common mistake is simply that the authors of the KJV just translated with mythical creatures what we know now were very common terms for everyday animals. Dragon. There are literally dozens of examples where the KJV in the KJV where the authors have translated the term as dragon, where we know that the term was simply for a coiled serpent. So I will only show a couple of the couplets that we talked about before to show that the snake serpents are what is being talked about and not mythical flying dragons. Deuteronomy 32, uh, 23. Their wine is the venom of serpents, or dragons in the KJV, and the deadly poison of cobras. Psalm 91, 13. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Notice that in these couplets, the dragon, which in the NSB has been correctly translated as serpent, is restated as a cobra, a very deadly and venomous snake. The couplets show that what is meant by dragon is not some mythical, fire-breathing, flying mega-serpent, but rather an ordinary, albeit deadly, snake. In fact, what we find is, is that within the Bible, the only time something could be translated as dragon is in the book of Revelation, where the Greek word dracon is used. In Greek, there are several words for snakes, serpents, and vipers, such as ophos, uh, echidna, and I'm going to argue that dracon is another one, though it means something more like a great serpent. While the term dragon has now come to mean something like a giant winged flying lizard that spews fire, we would commit what is called the retroactive fallacy by importing that meaning back into the text. In fact, we see in Revelation that this dracon is also found in a classic couplet. In Revelation 12:9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, 
the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him in this case the dragon is coupled with the serpent the serpent of the Old Testament that we saw above was a coiled serpent that represented the evil powers. Revelation is an apocalyptic book that uses imagery, specifically imagery from the Old Testament, to describe the current events of John's day. Uh, when, when he was looking for the right symbols to describe the devil and Nero and the oppressive Roman Empire, it's not surprising that he would use the same symbol of a serpent that was found throughout the Old Testament to describe Satan and Nebuchadnezzar, parallel to Nero, and to the oppressive empires of Egypt and Babylon, parallel to Rome. Revelation is not trying to tell us that there are flying red dragons haunting the hills of Israel. He is telling us about the evil powers of Satan and those people and nations that seek to oppress the people of God. Now, you may not believe that there is such a being as the devil, but the point is that we can quite easily see that the Bible is not telling us that there are dragons either, at least not in the way we imagine dragons to be in our folklore. Giants. Do the biblical authors believe in mega-humans towering over the treetops? Alright, let's look at some of the passages. Numbers 13.33 Quote, There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Enoch, are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Psalm 17.4 Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. 2 Samuel 21.15-22 I'm only going to read part because it's kind of repetitive, you'll see. There was a war against uh, again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants. And they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishi, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And it, go, it goes on to list a couple of these people who were called, quote, descendants of the giants. All right. <clears throat> Here we have the main examples that skeptics draw on the Bible to say that there are giants. Think jolly green giant like in the picture in the meme. The problem is that nothing of the sort is stated in the text. In the Numbers passage, uh, what we have um, is a group of spies uh, who are sent into the Promised Land to see how the Israelites can plan their military strategy. We know that these scouts are shown as lacking in confidence, so for them to say that there were Nephilim in the land and that they were like grasshoppers is clearly an exaggeration, and one about the superior might of the armies of the land, not a reference about their height. In fact, let's look at the verses that the Nephilim first appear, Genesis 1, uh, 6, 1-4. through 4. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they, cho they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, this is not a reference to giants or, as some suppose, fallen angels. The sons of God is not a reference to fallen angels. It's a reference to the faithful people of God in contrast to the sinful nature, uh, nations that surrounded them, which were called the daughters of, of, of man, or the daughters of, yeah, the daughters of man, daughters of humans. Uh, this is not some warning against breeding with demons, but against being unequally yoked, as the New Testament called it, uh, with unbelievers. 
The Nephilim were not even the children of those unions, as some suppose, and the text does not say that they were. It merely states that in those days the Nephilim were in the land. And that's it. There's a lot of debate about who the Nephilim were and what the root of the word Nephilim was. It seems to derive from the root for fall and could describe them as morally fallen or that they caused men to fall in battle. We just don't know. What we do know is that they were mighty warriors, men of renown, but nothing in the text states that they were giants. So when we come to the numbers passage, it is simply inappropriate to import such a meaning into the text. They were just a tribe of mighty warriors. Next, we get to the most famous giant of them all, Goliath. The problem is that nothing about him is really all that giant. Was he tall? Absolutely. In fact, the Bible tells us how tall Goliath was, six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit in the ancient Near East was a unit of measure from the inside of the elbow to the wrist, and a span is the length from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the pinky when the hand is spread apart, maybe another five inches back then. Some versions of a cubit went from the inside of the elbow to the tip of the middle finger, but the cubits in the Bible seem to have been what are called short cubits that were just to the forearm. Part of the problem is that this is far from a standardized unit of measure, such as an inch or a yard, and it would vary radically by location, ranging from 13 inches all the way to 36 inches, depending on who is doing the measuring. Considering the average person in ancient Israel was about 5 feet tall, a cubit would be about 13 inches to 15 inches, just over a foot. And that is being uh, generous. Um, so. Yeah, uh, even by, by so even if we're generous and put the cubit at 15 inches, that would put Goliath just over seven feet, right? And that's the generous measure. Yet by ancient standards, he would have been a giant over pretty much every other person in Israel and Philistia. Now, does the meme really want us to think that it's absurd to think that a human could exceed seven feet in the ancient world? Well. From here, we can look at the context in the Second Samuel passage. All of these references are to Philistines, specifically from Gath. That, that's the tribe that uh, Goliath is from. So these later references to these men being descendants of the giants simply means that they were from the same stock as Goliath, the really tall one. Hardly the jolly green giant of the meme. David was not the ancient equivalent of Jack the Giant Slayer who slew a man the size of a tall building. Next is the cockatrice. This one is a total catastrophe for the skeptic. It's a prime example where, there are only, where they are only willing to use the KJV and ignore the fact that we now know what the word means due to finding thousands of other documents that simply were not available to translators of the KJV. A cockatrice <clears throat> was a mythical serpent that was hatched from a rooster's egg, hence the crazy looking rooster dragon in the picture. So let's look at some of the verses in the NASB and see if you can spot where the KJV might have translated the word as cockatrice. Isaiah 11.8 The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall play, put his hand on the adder's den. Isaiah 14.29 Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you that the rod that has struck you, the, all of you, uh, bleh, let me start over. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder. Isaiah 59.5 They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's webs. He who eats the egg dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. 
Jeremiah 8:17. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. In all of these cases, the King James translates the word sepha as cockatrice, but it is the same word in Hebrew for an extremely poisonous adder, a snake. This is an example where the translators of the KJB simply did not have access to the wealth of resources about the meaning of ancient words that we have available to us now. This is why modern translations are more accurate. We have access not only to 400 more years of textual criticism, but also 400 years of textual discovery, where we can see more and more uses of the term to discover what the words actually meant at the time of composition. In this case, we know from all the other uses of the term that it is a reference to a very poisonous snake, an adder. Notice in the Jeremiah 8.17, it says that the adders cannot be charmed. This is clearly a representation of snake charming. Kangaroo. Obviously not, right? We can skip ahead this one. This is the one that we're supposed to know wasn't in the Bible. Satyr. So what about the satyr? Fail again. In Greek and Roman mythology, the satyr was a half-man, half-beast god, a, a companion of Bacchus. There's absolutely no relationship between the pagan concept and any passage in the Bible. The Hebrew is sa'ir, which means a hairy one and usually referred to goats. This is probably an example where the KJV just borrowed a similar sounding word since the Hebrew is sa'ir and they were familiar with what a satyr was. The term is used over 50 times in the Old Testament and only two of those times do the translators of the KJV or any other Bible translate it as satyr or anything but a goat. Every other time they translate it as a goat. Those two examples are Leviticus 17.7, quote, They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. They shall be a permanent statue to them throughout their generations. And Second Chronicles 11.14-15, For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. He set up priests of his own for the high places, for the satyrs, and for the calves which he had made. The only time it is used to describe super, a supernatural being is when it signifies the pagan goat deities, because the Hebrew didn't have a better word for a goat deity than hairy goats, and it does not confirm their existence, but actually denies them as pagan idols. Old Testament scholar J. Barton Payne notes, quote, far from being mythological satyrs as claimed by liberal criticism, the serim appear to have been simply goat idols used in conjunction with the golden calves, end quote. Both of these passages are referring to idolatry, and the second is condemning the installation of false priests by Jeroboam and his sons. These passages are describing what the pagan worshippers said that they were worshipping. Saying that the Bible affirms the real existence of these because it says that they were false deities in these verses is like saying that an atheist affirms the real existence of God because they claim God is a false deity. Talking donkey. Okay, I'll give the skeptic that there is a talking donkey in the Old Testament, but even then, it was not a talking donkey. That is, it did not exist as a talking donkey. The author did not think that there was in existence a species of donkeys that was able to talk. It was a one-time miracle where God chose to speak through a donkey to a faithless prophet, and the point was basically, you are being more stupid than this ass. 
But it's not as though the biblical authors thought that there were talking donkeys running around the woods with voice boxes. This is a miracle claim and not a claim about the existence of talking donkeys. Now again, you might think that miracles are impossible and thus still chalk this up to myth, but you cannot merely point to it and say, see, the Bible says that there are talking donkeys without basically begging the question of anti-supernaturalism. Unicorns. Fail again. This is again simply based on a poor translation of the Hebrew by the editors of the KJV. The Hebrew word is re'em, and is best translated as wild ox. In fact, what is so ironic about this is that the KJV translated as unicorn, even though in a few places, such as Deuteronomy 33:17, it's described as having horns. Yes, plural horns, as in more than one horn. This objection about unicorns is based on a long discredited translation found in the KJV. So, the Bible says that there are wild oxen, not unicorns. Now, all of this does not show that the Bible is inerrant or infallible. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to show that these kinds of memes, which are meant to be reasonable and rational, are themselves extremely uneducated and heavily biased. The very ironic thing about this and other memes is that the very same people who blindly and blissfully post them to support their own unbelief and mock and ridicule the supposed beliefs of others are the very same people who say that Christians are uneducated, irrational, and ignorant. And yet I have very little doubt that when I post this, I will receive emails from skeptics defending the meme and accusing me of just going through apologetical gyrations and leaps of logic to defend my faith at all costs. They will defend at all costs the anti-historical, anti-intellectualism that this kind of meme embodies and ignore all history, scholarship, and reason. Brights indeed. Well, that's about all the time we have for today on this edition of the Freed Thinker Podcast. Please join us again. Again, if you'd like to follow me on the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, on Facebook at the face group page for the Freed Thinker Podcast, or you can find me on iTunes by searching the Freed Thinker Podcast. Subscribe and download this and other episodes. Thank you all very much and have a great day.